We have probably all seen it. If you are driving to the beach and back this summer, you are almost certain to see it. It's right there on I-65 northbound near Prattville. It's become an Alabama icon, really a, a landmark in our state. Right there on the side of the interstate, right by a water mill, very picturesque, there is a billboard that says, go to church or the devil will get you. Have you seen that billboard? It's a great billboard. It's a great billboard. Uh, there's a picture on that billboard of a red-tailed devil to drive the point home, as if the words themselves didn't scare you enough. They've got the devil right there. Go to church or the devil will get you. I think that billboard is exactly right. And in fact, I think that billboard in a lot of ways sums up the meaning of our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 31, except I will say this. The warning in Hebrews chapter 10 is even more severe. It's not just go to church or the devil will get you. It's go to church or God will get you, which is even scarier. So I want to walk you through this passage this morning. It is a deep, rich, mysterious, complex passage. There's so much here, but I want to show you uh, some of these treasures and help you understand not just why you ought to be in church, but why it's a great blessing to be in church, to gather with God's people. I want you to see why it's so important to gather for a worship service like this, to gather with the church, and what happens if you neglect or forsake the assembling of God's people. I want you to see the logic of this passage. There are really two sections to this passage that we read from Hebrews chapter 10. There's verses 19 to 25, and then there's verses 26 to 31. That first section be summarized this way, go to church and go to heaven. The second section can be summarized, go to church or go to hell. So those are the two sections, go to church and go to heaven. May not mean what you think it means. I'll explain that in a minute. Go to church and go to heaven. Second section, go to church or go to hell. I'm going to spend a lot more time on that first section, uh, but we will eventually get to that second section too. Verses 19 to 25. Start with verse 19, but really to understand what's happening there, we've got to jump ahead to the end of this section, verse 25. Verse 25 really is the culmination of the exhortations here. He says, let us not neglect meeting together, synagoguing together is literally what he says. Let us not neglect meeting together. He's driving at that conclusion, at that command. But how does he get there? How does he ground that command that we must continue to meet Together. Well, what he does, starting in verse 19, is he describes what happens when we gather together as the church. And he describes how we should gather together as the church. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 puts it this way. It describes our gathering together as drawing near. That is actually technical language drawn from the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Leviticus, for worship at the tabernacle or later at the temple. The Israelites would draw near to the Lord at the tabernacle, at the temple. They would bring their animal offerings, which are literally called near bringings. Why are the animal offerings called near brings? Well, because those animal sacrifices got even nearer to God than the worshiper. The old covenant system was really a system of drawing near to God through a proxy, through a substitute. 
Think about the, the structure or the architecture of the tabernacle and later the temple. You've probably seen diagrams of this before. There was the simplifying here, but basically there was an outer court and then there was a holy place and then there was the most holy place or the holy of holies, which was God's throne room. That's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant. The holy place and the most holy place were separated by veils. And those veils had images of cherubim stitched into them. Why cherubim? Well, that recalls the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. God stationed cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is the original sanctuary. God stationed these cherubim there to guard the sanctuary to keep fallen humanity out of God's presence. Eden was up on a mountain. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast down that mountain and they were told to keep out. They were not allowed back into God's sanctuary. They could not draw near in the same way they could before the fall. Those veils in the tabernacle and in the temple were like keep out signs. They were uh, like no trespassing signs. They warned trespassers will be destroyed with sword and fire. The only way back into the sanctuary, the only way back into the throne room of God and the very presence of God is through sword and flame. So Old Covenant worshipers could draw near to God, but not very near. God kept worshipers at an arm's length. The animal got to draw near. Again, that's why the animal sacrifices were called near bringings. But the animal went through sword and flame. It was killed by the sword for the sin of the worshiper and then cut up and put on the altar fire where it ascended up to heaven in smoke to become part of God's glory cloud. The animal got to go to heaven, at least symbolically. And so if you worship God in the old covenant, the animal got to ascend to God's presence, but you did not. The animal died for you and went to heaven for you. The animal died for you and ascended for you. Now with that in mind, with that whole system, and I've greatly oversimplified here, but with all of that in mind, look at what he says beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil that is his flesh, those words would have been absolutely shocking to a first century Jewish audience. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we can draw near, in fact, we can enter the holy of holies. Now, there's another piece of information you need here to make sense out of this. The Israelites knew that the tabernacle on earth and later the temple on earth, that these were copies of the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews actually says that in chapter 8, that the tabernacle on earth was a copy, it was an earthly copy of the heavenly original, an earthly sanctuary that was a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. So remember how Moses got the blueprints for the tabernacle up on a mountaintop as if he got to peer into heaven and that was the blueprint for the tabernacle they would build on earth. It was the same for Solomon. He got a, a, a vision of heaven, a, a, a insight into the architecture of heaven and that became the blueprint for the temple that he would go on to build. The tabernacle and the temple were earthly models based on the architecture of heaven. Old Covenant worshipers knew this. They knew the ultimate goal was not just to get into the Holy of Holies on earth, but to get into the Holy of Holies in heaven itself. But they also knew that they were excluded from the Holy of Holies on earth from the copy, and so they were certainly excluded from the Holy of Holies 
in heaven. And now Hebrews 10 says Christians have access to the heavenly holy of holies, to the true most holy place. It is astounding. It is an absolutely amazing claim. How can this be? How can we suddenly have access to the heavenly sanctuary that we've been shut out of for so long? We've been shut out even of the earthly copy. It's a reality, as verse 20 says, because of the new and living way opened up for us through Jesus. Specifically through his death on the cross when his flesh was torn by those nails and he died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Hebrews here is describing the theological meaning of an event that is recorded for us in Mark chapter 15 when Jesus dies, when he breathes his last on the cross, the Roman centurion is standing there and and he can see across the way to the temple that that curtain in the temple, that veil is ripped in two from top to bottom. God reaches down and just tears it apart to say this system is obsolete and now the heavenly sanctuary has been opened. And so verse 21 goes on, we can enter the heavenly sanctuary because we have a great high priest. The old covenant high priest could go into the most holy place on earth one time a year, one day a year on the day of atonement. And that was it. But we have a great high priest, a much better high priest now, who not only goes into the heavenly sanctuary for us, but who can bring us there to be with him. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. That's the whole point this book is making, that Jesus is better. He's better than than the old covenant. The covenant he brings in is better than the old covenant. He's better than the law. He's better than the angels who delivered the law. He's better than Moses who received the law. He's better than the priests, the sacrifices, the temple. He's better than all of it. He is superior to every feature of the old covenant. The whole old covenant was like scaffolding. You know how the scaffolding will be used while a building is under construction. And once the building is complete, you take the scaffolding down. Well, that whole Old Covenant system was like scaffolding. It was good for a time, but now it is obsolete because the building, the reality is here. So you can take the scaffolding down. The problem, and this is really the issue that the book of Hebrews is written to address, is that there were some Jews in the first century who wanted to cling to the scaffolding. They, pr- they preferred the shadow to the substance. They wanted the copy over the reality. They continued to cling to an obsolete system, a system made obsolete by the coming of Jesus, by his death, resurrection, and ascension. And the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, I think probably living in and around Jerusalem. Uh, these are Jewish Christians who are being pressured by their countrymen by other Jews, by unbelieving Jews, to go back to that old covenant system and to defend it. War between Israel and Rome is on the horizon. When this book is written, probably in the mid-60s of the first century, war is about to break out. And these Jewish Christians are being accused by other Jews of being traitors. They're being accused of treason because they won't defend the temple. And so they're being pressured and persecuted to leave the church to forsake the church's gatherings and to go back to the old covenant, to the temple. 
And the writer of Hebrews is is explaining to them why they should not do that. Of course, Jesus had already prophesied all of this. Jesus had already announced that that whole temple system would be coming to an end within a generation, that the temple would be destroyed. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, as he's walking around the temple with his disciples, he says, not one stone will be left upon another. He said, once you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, head for the hills. It's time to get out. The Jews are saying, hey, when the city is surrounded by enemies, that's by armies, that's when we need to go fight. And Jesus is saying, that's when you need to flee because God's not going to defend that temple. It's obsolete. And Jesus said, all of these things will come upon this generation of Jews. Hebrews 10 verse 25 is talking about the same thing when it says, as you see the day approaching. What is that day? The day is the day when the temple will be destroyed in 70 AD. See, from 30 AD to 70 AD, there were two temples on earth. There was the temple in Jerusalem and there was the church which is called the temple by Paul in his letters and by Peter in his letters. In fact, Jesus really refers to gatherings of his disciples as the temple in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there I am among you. There will be the Shekinah glory in your midst. That's really a way of describing the church as the temple as well, the fulfillment of the temple, the new temple. There are as many temples as there are Christian gatherings. The New Testament, though, is dominated by this question, which is truly God's temple? Where is God's presence? Where are God's blessings found? Where should God be sought? Which is truly God's temple? The one in Jerusalem or these gatherings of Christians? 70 AD is God's definitive answer to that question. God answers that question by destroying the temple in Jerusalem. So only one temple is left standing. God shakes down those things that can be shaken so that which cannot be shaken remains. Only one temple is left standing and that is the church. And because the church is the true temple of God, the church has access to the heavenly temple. And that's really the argument that Hebrews is making in this part of chapter 10. This is the point. Jesus is our great high priest. And he does not just enter the heavenly sanctuary for us, but he takes us to be where he is. He has opened a way for us to enter. See, he is our great high priest. And now in union with him, we are priests as well. We are holy people with access to holy space. When the New Testament calls us saints, this is what it means. A saint is someone with sanctuary access. You can even see how those words are related. Saints enter sanctuaries. That's what it means to be a saint. So verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. Here he's actually reminding them how we become priests with sanctuary access. How do we enter into this priesthood so we can enjoy this blessing of heavenly sanctuary access? He really describes here an objective and a subjective aspect to it. Objectively, our bodies are washed with water. What's that referring to? We should all see this. It is baptism. 
want you to think about this. When Old Covenant priests, when, when men were ordained to be priests in the Old Covenant, there was actually a very elaborate ordination ritual they would go through. You can read about this in Exodus and in Leviticus. That ordination ritual included a washing with water. What Hebrews is indicating here is that that whole ritual of priestly ordination is now fulfilled in Christian baptism. We are baptized into the priesthood of Christ. When you are baptized, heaven opens to you, just as heaven opened at Jesus' baptism. When you are baptized, you become a priest with access to the heavenly sanctuary. The heavens open for you. Baptism is your ordination to this royal priesthood. But of course, if you want to continue in this royal priesthood and all its blessings, you have to receive and live out what has been offered and given to you in baptism by faith. And that's why he also speaks here of having our hearts sprinkled clean and holding fast to the confession of our faith. That's why he speaks of having true hearts and and having this faith. Baptism enrolls you in the new covenant priesthood. That is a gift. That is a grace. But as the baptized, you must cling to the promises given to you in your baptism. You have been declared holy in baptism, so now you have the obligation to live a holy life. And that's why he goes on to say, when we gather as this priesthood, we're to stir one one another up to love and good deeds, because that's what a holy life looks like. Holy people with access to holy space must live holy lives. That is his point. This holiness begins in baptism, but then it has to be lived out. But here's the really important part for our purposes. When we gather for worship, what happens? Where do we go? When we gather for worship, we enter the heavenly sanctuary. That is his point. In the old covenant, the animal sacrifice ascended. In the new covenant, we ascend in union with our great high priest. Now, obviously, this is... A mystery. If I say to you right this very moment, we are actually in the heavens. We have ascended from, from Birmingham up into the heavenly sanctuary. That may be hard to believe, hard to grasp. We can't explain it. But it is a spiritual reality. And it's taught again and again in the New Testament scriptures. The New Covenant Church has always believed this. In worship, we enter the heavenly sanctuary. This is, in fact, one of the great themes in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 says, In worship and in prayer, we come boldly before the throne of grace. Okay, we come before the throne of grace. Where is the throne of grace? Well, it's certainly not on earth. No, it's in the heavenly sanctuary, the true most holy place. In fact, if you want to see that throne of grace, read Revelation chapters 4 and 5. There you will see the worship assembly gathered around the throne of grace in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 22, you might, if you've got your Bible handy, you might even want to look at this. It's such an amazing passage. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22 This is how the writer describes coming to church, what it means to come to church when we gather what happens. He says, in coming to church, you have come to Mount Zion. So you've ascended, you're at the mountaintop. He says, you've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've left the earthly Jerusalem behind. You're in the heavenly Jerusalem. And who populates this city? He says, you have come to an innumerable company of angels. 
angels are present in our worship gatherings, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. He says you have come to to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. That is to say, believers who have already died and gone to heaven, your loved ones who've, who've, who've died, who've gone to be with the Lord, you are in their presence. Every Lord's Day, when you gather for worship, they're in heaven. When we gather for worship, we ascend into heaven. We're worshiping with the spirits of just men made perfect. We're with them every Lord's Day, arrayed around the heavenly throne, worshiping God with them. The passage goes on. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than the blood, better things than the blood of Abel. See, under the old covenant, it would have been a sin for the Israelites to enter the most holy place on earth. Under the new covenant, it is a sin to not enter the most holy place in heaven. God, through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, God invites and indeed summons us into his heavenly presence. That's what Hebrews 12 is describing. That's really what Hebrews 10 is describing. This is what the book of Revelation describes too. This is a huge theme in the book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation records a worship service. It is a liturgy. John tells us at the very beginning of the book that he is in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is a Lord's day event. And John acts as a representative of the whole church in this book. How does it start? It starts out with a vision of Jesus that serves as the call to worship in chapter 1. So you've got a call to worship. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus walks among his churches, calling on them to repent, calling on them to confess their sins. So you've got a call to worship. You've got a confession of sin. This should be starting to feel really familiar. Then at the start of chapter 4, a door in heaven is open and a voice calls out to John, come up here. And John ascends up to heaven to the throne of grace where he joins in the worship of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. And they are singing the sanctus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John is raptured up to heaven, he ascends up into heaven and then John begins to participate in the heavenly liturgy and a lot of it should look really familiar if you go read Revelation. It looks a lot like what we do every Sunday. John, as a representative of the worshiping church, enters into heaven. He's taken up to heaven to join in the heavenly liturgy. I remember when my kids were little and as we'd be putting them in the car on a Sunday morning, I'd ask, do you know where we're going today? And of course they'd say church. And I'd say, but do you know where we're really going? We're going to heaven. And then, of course, I'd try to remind them on the way home, all right, we're headed back to earth now, but we're seeking to bring the life of heaven and the blessings of heaven with us. We ascend up into the heavenlies, into the heavenly sanctuary in worship. The New Testament affirms that mystical miracle again and again and again. It is a reality. It is a reality this very moment. It's not based on what you think or what you feel. No, we know by faith this is what is happening. It's based on what God says, what God does, what God promises. Traditionally, it's been understood that the point of ascent, the point of our entrance into heaven is the sursum corda. That's Latin for lift up your hearts. When we lift our hearts up to the Lord. Germanus, who was an 8th century bishop, described the church's worship this way. Listen to how he describes the church's gathering, the church's liturgy. When the church gathers for worship, the church is an earthly heaven. 
he says. So it's the place where heaven and earth meet, where they come together. He says, the souls of Christians are called to gather to assemble with prophets and apostles. We are seated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the mystical banquet of Christ. He says in worship, we are no longer on earth, but are standing by the royal throne of God in heaven where Christ is. John Calvin put it this way in talking about how Christ is present with us in the Lord's Supper. For Calvin, it's not that the bread on earth turns into the body of Christ, but rather Christ takes us up into the heavenly sanctuary where he is. So Calvin says this, in order that pious souls may feed upon Christ in the supper, they must be raised up to heaven For this reason, it was established of old that they should be told in a loud voice to lift up their hearts to heaven. So for Calvin, the Sursum Corda is the church's, you could say, I'll put it this way, it is the liturgy's altar call. That Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts to the Lord. We are being called to the heavenly altar. You're not being called forward, like the way some churches do altar calls. I think that's a misunderstanding. You're being called upward to the heavenly altar to the heavenly throne room. Every week, God opens the door to heaven for his church. And we lift up our hearts. We ascend into the heavenlies. The ascension of Jesus happened once and for all, but liturgically, we ascend into heaven in the spirit every Lord's day. What that means is God is present with us in gathered worship in a unique way. Some people will say, well, why bother going to church? God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. So why can't I go fishing on a Sunday morning and find God there? Why can't I go to the beach on a Sunday morning and find God there? I don't doubt God's there. God is omnipresent. But that misses the point. Because God is present Here, in the gathering of his people, where his word is proclaimed and his supper is celebrated, God is present here in a different way compared to how he is present in other places. Sure, God's present on the golf course. We can certainly say that. But you know what? God's also present in hell. God's presence doesn't automatically mean something good for you. What we need is to know that God is present for us to bless us. Not that God is present against us, but that God is present for us. And that's really what the liturgy is all about. John Calvin, again, he put it this way. Believers have no greater help than public worship, for by it God raises his own people upward to heaven step by step. This is the point. You need to seek God where he has promised to be found, where he has promised his blessing, where he has promised Forgiveness based on the sacrifice of Christ, where he's promised the powerful, renewing work of the Holy Spirit to be active. You need to seek God where he is promised to be found, and that is in the gathering of his people, where his word is proclaimed and where his supper is celebrated. And if you refuse to gather, yes, you will still be in God's presence, but God may be present against you rather than for you. In the gathering of God's people, you will receive gifts you cannot get anywhere else. This is unique. God is uniquely present here. Oh, yes, it is true. The beauty of nature can point you to God. I don't doubt that at all. But that is not the same as what God promises to do for his people when they gather to renew covenant with him each Lord's day. 
And so I want you to think about this. If someone were to ask you the question, why go to church? Or if they were to ask the question, do I have to go to church? What would you say? You know, there really are a lot of ways to answer that question. For example, you could point them to the desire of the psalmist. We read those words from Psalm 122. I read them again for us this morning. Those words from Psalm 122. We have them every week in our liturgy where the psalmist says, I rejoiced when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122 is part of a group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. They're psalms that the Israelites would sing on their way as they're making their pilgrimage, as they are ascending towards God's presence, towards the temple. And the psalmist says he rejoices to go to the house of God. The desire of the psalmist to meet with God's people is normative. You should feel about gathering with God's people the same way the psalmist did. You should rejoice to gather with God's people at the house of the Lord. That's one way you can answer that question. Here's another way. You could point to the example of the church in the New Testament, the apostolic era. There are several places where it is clear in the New Testament that apostolic churches gathered for worship on the first day of the week. Jesus established that pattern after his resurrection, meeting with his disciples on consecutive Sundays, the first day of the week. Jesus attends church every week. Why shouldn't you? If Jesus attends church every week, shouldn't you attend church every week as well? The apostles made this the norm in the churches they planted. So just to give you an example of this, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, on the first day of the week, they gathered for the breaking of the bread and Paul preached to them. And that was clearly their custom and it should be our custom as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 talks about setting aside tithes and offerings on the first day of the week, obviously because that's when the church is gathering. So these are all ways you can answer that question. Why should I go to church? Do I have to go to church? But I think we have the ultimate answer to that question. The ultimate reason to go to church is found here in Hebrews chapter 10. Why go to church? Because it is your weekly entrance into heaven. Going to church is going to heaven. Which means going to church is a get-to, not just a got-to. It is an obligation. It is a got-to. But it's also a privilege and a blessing. It is a get-to. In fact, it is the greatest single privilege we have in this life. Think about it this way. If God invites you to come over to his house, in fact, if God invites you to come over to his house, his heavenly house, for a meal, who are you to refuse that invitation? You have 52 standing invitations a year to come to God's heavenly house for a heavenly banquet. Who are you to refuse? When we ascend into the heavenly sanctuary each Sunday, God gives us his gifts. We experience heavenly realities in a way we can't anywhere else. I think far, far too many Christians view church as optional. They don't see attendance at worship as an obligation. They don't see it as an essential feature of the Christian life. It's the kind of thing you can take or leave. What does Hebrews say about that? We've seen the positive in verses 19 through 25, go to church and go to heaven. But starting in verse 26, we get the negative, we get the other side. Verse 26, I would say, doesn't really mark a new section. I've kind of broken the passage into two sections. But they really go together. There's a common 
thread of thought here. He, he's still he's making a sustained argument that continues. Your Bible translation might mark off chapter uh, verse twenty six of chapter ten as if it were altogether new, like he's changed the subject. But no, his line of thought actually continues. He has just said in verse 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Now keep reading, verse 26. For if we sin, for points back to the immediately preceding verse. For if we sin willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And so we have to ask the question, what is the willful sin in view in verse 26? Obviously, all willful sin is spiritually dangerous, but there is a particular sin in view here. And it is that sin described in the preceding verse, in verse 25, the sin of forsaking the church's gatherings. You could call it the sin of skipping church. It's the sin just mentioned in verse 25, neglecting the assembling of the saints. And so he's saying this, after you have been given this knowledge that Jesus is better, that Jesus has brought in a new and better covenant with a better liturgy, after you've been given this knowledge that a new and living way into the heavenly sanctuary has been opened up for us, if you know all of that and you sin willfully by not gathering with God's people, by not gathering for church, well, then he says there is no sacrifice to cover your sin. Because you have left the main place where that sacrifice is proclaimed and applied. Here's a way to think about it. If you refuse to go to heaven weekly, why should you expect to go to heaven when you die? If God invites you into heaven every Lord's Day, and you're continually saying, no thank you God, why should you expect to be welcomed into heaven when you die? God's been giving you this invitation all along, you've turned it down. As verse 27 goes on to say, for those who abandon the church, all there is left is a fearful expectation of judgment. God counts you as an adversary. When God invites you over to his house, to his heavenly house for a heavenly banquet, if you're a friend of God, you come whenever you can. If you refuse that invitation again and again and again, God's going to count you as an enemy. God's going to say, my friends come and meet with me. It's my enemies who turn down the invitation." Verse 29 goes on and says, for those who abandon the church, those who forsake the assembling of God's people to gather, you are trampling the Son of God underfoot. You have insulted the Spirit of grace. God is offering you his gifts. He's invited you into his heavenly home. And if you have the audacity to reject his weekly invitation, if you keep saying, God, I don't want to be with you, I don't want your gifts, I don't need your gifts, I don't want to hear you announce to me the forgiveness of my sins, I don't want to be in the place where your life-giving word is proclaimed, you just need to know your refusal makes God angry, very angry, we might say, on the basis of this passage. And so as verse 30 says, God takes vengeance on those who abuse his gifts. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Far worse than falling into the hands of the devil. I mean, that would be bad enough, but falling into the hands of the living God, much worse, much more fearful. When God's people gather for covenant renewal, God expects his people to show up. And in normal circumstances... In ordinary circumstances, you cannot live a faithful Christian life 
without the church, without regularly, routinely, as a habit, as a custom, as a way of life, gathering with God's people. If that's not the pattern of your life, there's a problem. But again, far too many modern American Christians think of their faith really apart from the church. They don't see the need for the church. They think of their faith as a completely individualistic and private thing. The church is at best a supplement or an accessory. It it, it does for uh, somebody with a healthy diet what vitamins might do. It's just kind of a supplement. You can take them if you need them. You can go to church if if you need that extra little spiritual boost. But going to church is not essential, certainly not mandatory in their view. To think that way is to make a grave mistake. That is what Hebrews 10 is warning about. Let me give you the bottom line here and then make a few pastoral applications of this. The bottom line is this. God commands you to worship with his people each Lord's day. And God promises to make it worth your while by giving you his special gifts when you gather. Gifts you can get nowhere else. Thus, it is always spiritually disastrous to not attend church, especially if that becomes a pattern. Again, John Calvin here is really, really helpful in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's certainly, undoubtedly, one of the most important theological works ever written, especially book four. It's divided up into four books, especially book four, one of the most influential pieces of writing in all of history. You know, people sometimes want to know, are you a five-point Calvinist? And I would say, yes, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I think you should be too. That's a wonderful way of affirming the graciousness of our salvation, uh, the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation. But I've gotten to the point where I want to ask people, not are you a five-point Calvinist, but are you a four-book Calvinist? Do you believe in all four books, including that fourth book about the church? This is how Calvin describes it. Uh, in book four. He starts off by calling the church our mother and talks about how we need her nourishing care all throughout our lives. And listen to what he goes on to say. Away from her, that is away from the church, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. God's fatherly favor and the special witness of spiritual life are limited to his flock so that it is always disastrous to leave the church. The Lord esteems the communion of his church so highly that he counts as a traitor and an apostate from Christianity anyone who arrogantly leaves any Christian society that cherishes the true ministry of word and sacrament. Calvin is saying, to leave, I don't mean move from one church to another. That, that's a whole different deal. That's not what Calvin's talking about. Calvin's talking about people who leave the church. And he says, it is always spiritually disastrous to leave the church. God will count you as an apostate and a traitor if you forsake the gathering of God's people. That's the bottom line. Now, let me give you a couple applications here. First, obviously, there are exceptions. It would be unpastoral to not mention this. There are times when you are providentially hindered from meeting with God's people and God is compassionate and God will take care of you if you can't make it to church for some reason. If you are sick, obviously don't come. If your car breaks down on the way or you just had a baby or there's inclement weather, there are all kinds of reasons we might give. We could create a whole list of of times where, yes, it would be perfectly justifiable to not make it to church on that particular Lord's Day. Some jobs require people to work on the Lord's Day. And there's just no getting around that. Everyone is going to miss church sometimes. 
But the point is this, do all you can to make it when God's people gather on the Lord's Day. It's just that important. It ought to have that kind of priority in your life. I would urge that you make going to church a priority even when you're on vacation, if at all possible. Because you might take a vacation from work and your responsibilities at home, but you're not taking a vacation from God. So I would urge you to even make going to church a priority when you're on vacation. I think we need to recognize, too, a lot of the excuses people give for not going to church are not valid. Sometimes people just say, well, I needed to catch up on my sleep, so I'm going to sleep in. Uh, Sometimes people go to a sporting event. They choose that over church. What does that say about your priorities? There are people who say, well, I didn't make it to church because I just didn't feel like it. Okay, well, I would ask, why are you making your feelings a higher authority than God's word? I bet you go to work whether you feel like it or not, right? Because work is important. So if you just don't go to church because you don't feel like it, what does that say about church? If you're regularly skipping out on church without good reason, if this has become a pattern, I would ask, why do you think of yourself as a Christian? Think about this. In the first century, The risk of getting persecuted was not a valid excuse for missing worship. These Christians would continue meeting and in doing so would put their lives on the line. They were at great risk. They were risking their very lives to go to church. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect it. Don't forsake it. The fact that you might be persecuted is no excuse. Parents understand one of the very best things you can do for your kids is to teach them that there is nothing more important than worshiping with God's people on the Lord's day. Gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day for the Lord's supper, there's nothing more important than that. And so I would encourage you, instead of sacrificing church so you can do other things, sacrifice other things so you can go to church. Instead of missing church to do other things, miss those other things so you can go to church. That is the best policy in light of Hebrews chapter 10. And that should be the normal Christian life. There is nothing more basic, more foundational, more essential than regularly gathering with God's people for worship in the heavenly sanctuary. Going to church is not a guarantee of salvation by itself, of course. It's not like you're just checking a box. You have to mix that church attendance with a living faith. But forsaking the church as a pattern, that is a guarantee of judgment. When we gather, we enter heaven. This is where the throne of grace is found. This is where Christ is found. This is where his gifts are found in the assembly of his people. The best thing you can do is gather regularly with God's people. The worst thing you can do is to forsake that gathering. So, That billboard on I-65, I don't know anything about who put it up. I don't know what their theology is. I don't know what message they were trying to send. But I'll tell you this, that billboard on I-65 is exactly right. Go to church or the devil will get you. In fact, I'll up the ante. I'll raise the stakes. Go to church or you will fall into the hands of the living God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.